Section 16 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 4 Luther by the Reverend T. M. Lindsay. Part 4 Luther's theses, in their lack of precise theological definition and of logical arrangement, are singularly unlike what might have been expected from a professional theologian, and they contain repetitions which might easily have been avoided. They are not a clearly reasoned statement of a theological doctrine. Still less are they the program of a scheme of reformation. They are simply ninety-five sledgehammer blows directed against the most flagrant ecclesiastical abuse of the age. They look like the utterance of a man who is in close contact with the people, who had been shocked at statements made by the preachers of the indulgence, who had read a good deal of the current theological opinions published in defense of indulgences, and had noted several views which he longed to contradict as publicly as possible. They are prefaced with the expression of love and desire to elucidate the truth. They read as if they were addressed to the common man and appealed to his common sense of spiritual things. Luther had told the assembly of clergy, who met at Litzkau in 1512 to discuss the affairs of the church, that every true reformation must begin with individual men, and that it must have for its center the regenerate heart, for its being an awakening faith, and for its inspiration the preaching of a pure gospel. The note which he sounded in this, his earliest utterance which has come down to us, is re-echoed in the theses. It is heard in the opening sentences. The penitence which Christ requires is something more than a momentary expression of sorrow. It is an habitual thing which lasts continuously during the whole of the believer's life. Outward deeds of penitence are necessary to manifest the real penitence which is inward, and which is the source of a continuous mortification of the flesh. Confession is also a necessary thing because the true penitent must be prepared to humble himself. But the one thing needful is the godly contrition of the heart. In the theses, Luther makes six distinct assertions about indulgences and their efficacy. 1. Indulgence is, and can only be, the remission of a canonical penalty. The Church can remit what the Church has imposed. It cannot remit what God has imposed. 2. An indulgence can never remit guilt. The Pope himself is unable to do this. 3. It cannot remit the divine punishment for sin. God keeps that in his own hands. 4. It has no application to souls in purgatory. For penalties imposed by the Church can only refer to the living. Death dissolves them. All that the Pope can do for souls in purgatory is by prayer, and not by any power of keys. 5. The Christian who has true repentance has already received pardon from God altogether apart from an indulgence, and does not need it. 
and Christ demands this true repentance from everyone. 6. The treasure of merits has never been properly defined and is not understood by the people. It cannot be the merits of Christ and the saints, because these act without any intervention from the Pope. It can mean nothing more than that the Pope, having the power of the keys, can remit satisfactions imposed by the Church. The true treasure of merits is the holy gospel of the grace of God. The theses had a circulation which, for the times, was unprecedented. They were known all over Germany, Myconius assures us, within a fortnight. This popularity was no doubt partly due to the growing dislike of papal methods of gaining money. But there must have been more than that in it. Luther was only uttering aloud what thousands of pious Germans had been thinking. The lack of all theological treatment must have increased their popularity. The sentences were plain and easily understood. They kept within the field of simple religious and moral truth. Their effect was so immediate that the sales of indulgences began to decline. The theses appealed to all those who had been brought up in the simple evangelical family piety and who had not forsaken it and they appealed also to all who shared that non-ecclesiastical piety which had been rising and spreading during the last decades of the fifteenth century. Both these forces, purely religious, at once rallied round the author. Theologians were provokingly silent about the theses. Luther's intimate friends, who agreed with his opinions, thought that he had acted with great rashness. His bishop had told him that he saw nothing to object to in his declarations, but advised him to write no more on the subject. Before the end of the year, Tetzel published counter-theses, written for him by Conrad Vimpina of Frankfurt on the Oder. John Eck, Meyer, by far the ablest of Luther's opponents, had in circulation, though probably unpublished, an answer, entitled, Obelisks, which was in Luther's hands as early as March 4, 1518, and was probably answered by Luther on March 24, although the answer was not published until August. The theses had been sent to Rome by the Archbishop of Mainz. The Pope, Leo X, thinking that they represented a merely monkish quarrel, contented himself with asking the general of the Augustinian Aramites to keep things quiet among his monks. But at Rome, Sylvester Mazzolini, called Priarius, from his birthplace, Priario, a Dominican papal censor from the Roman province and an inquisitor, was profoundly dissatisfied with Luther's declarations, and answered them in a book entitled A Dialogue About the Power of the Pope Against the Presumptuous Conclusions of Martin Luther. In April 1518, the Augustinian Aramites held their usual annual chapter at Heidelberg, and Luther went there in spite of many warnings that his life was not safe out of Wittenberg. At these general chapters some time was always spent in theological discussion, and Luther at last heard his theses temperately discussed. He found the opposition to his views much stronger than he had expected— 
but the real discussion so pleased him that he returned to Wittenberg much strengthened and comforted. On his return he began a general answer to his opponents. The book Resoluciones was probably the most carefully prepared of all Luther's writings. It was meditated over long and rewritten several times. It contains an interesting and partly biographical dedication to Staupitz. It is addressed to the Pope. It sets forth a detailed defense of the author's ninety-five conclusions on the subject of indulgences. If we concern ourselves with the central position in the attacks made on Luther's theses, it will be found that they amount to this— that indulgences are simply a particular case of the use of the ordinary power placed in the hands of the Pope, and are whatever the Pope means them to be, and that no discussion about the precise kind of efficacy which may be in their use is to be tolerated. The Roman Church is virtually the universal Church, and the Pope is practically the Roman Church. Hence, as the representative of the Roman Church— which in turn represents the universal church, the Pope, when he acts officially, cannot err. Official decisions are given in actions as well as in words, and custom has the force of law. Therefore, whoever objects to such long-established customs as indulgences is a heretic and does not deserve to be heard. Luther in his theses, and still more in his resoluciones, had repudiated all the additions made to the theory and practice of indulgences founded on papal action during the three centuries past, and all the scholastic subtleties which had attempted to justify those practices. The answers of his opponents, and especially of Priarius, had barred all such discussion by declaring that ecclesiastical usages were matters of faith, and by interposing the official infallibility of the Bishop of Rome. Had the question been one of intellectual speculation only, it is probable that the Pope would not have placed himself behind his too zealous supporters. The Church was accustomed to the presence of various schools of theology with differing opinions— but the Curia had always been extremely sensitive about indulgences. They were the source of an enormous revenue, and anything which checked their sale would have caused financial embarrassment. Hence it is scarcely to be wondered at that Pope Leo summoned Luther to Rome to answer for his attack on the system of indulgences. This sudden summons, July 1518, to appear before the inquisitorial office could be represented as an affront to Wittenberg, and Luther wrote to Spalatin, the elector's chaplain, and the chief link between his court and the university, suggesting that German princes ought to defend the rights of German universities attacked in his person. Spalatin immediately wrote to the elector Frederick and to the emperor Maximilian, both of whom were at Augsburg at this time. The elector was jealous of the rights of his university, and he had a high regard for Luther, who had done so much to make his university the flourishing seat of learning it had become. The emperor's keen political vision discerned a useful, if obscure, ally in the young German theologian. Luther is sure to begin a game with the priests, 
he said. The elector should take good care of that monk, for he will be useful to us some day. So the Pope was urged to suspend the summons and grant Luther a trial on German soil. The matter was left in the hands of the Pope's legate in Germany, Catiatan Thomas de Vio, and Luther was ordered to present himself before that official at Augsburg. When Luther had nailed his theses to the door of the castle church at Wittenberg, he had been a solitary monk driven imperiously by his conscience to act alone and afraid to compromise any of his friends. It must have been with very different feelings that he started on his journey to meet the cardinal legate at Augsburg. He knew that the theses had won for him numberless sympathizers. His correspondence shows that his university was with him to a man. The students were enthusiastic and thronged his classroom. His theology, theology based on the Holy Scriptures and on Augustine and Bernard, was spreading rapidly through the convents of his order in Germany, and even in the Netherlands. Melanchthon had come to Wittenberg on the 25th of August. He had begun to lecture on Homer and on the Epistle to Titus, and Luther was exulting in the thought that his university would soon show German scholarship able to match itself against the Italian. The days were fast disappearing, he wrote, when the Romans could cheat the Germans with their intrigues, trickeries, and treacheries treat them as blockheads and bores, and gull them continuously and shamelessly. As for the Pope, he was not to be moved by what pleased or displeased his holiness. The Pope was a man, as Luther himself was, and many a Pope had been guilty not merely of errors, but of crimes. At quieter moments, however, he was oppressed with the thought that it had been laid on him who hated publicity, who loved to keep quiet and teach his students and preach to his people, to stand forth as he had felt compelled to do. The patriot, the prophet of a new era, the humble, almost shrinking Christian monk, all these characters appear in his correspondence with his intimates in the autumn of 1518. The Diet which had just closed when Luther reached Augsburg, had witnessed some brilliant scenes. A cardinal's hat had been bestowed on the Archbishop of Mainz with all gorgeous solemnities. The aged Emperor Maximilian had been solemnly presented with the pilgrimage symbols of a hat and a dagger, both blessed by the Pope. His Holiness invited Germany to unite in a crusade against the Turks— and the emperor would have willingly appeared as the champion of Christendom. But the German princes, spiritual and secular, were in no mood to fulfill any demands made from Rome. The spirit of revolt had not yet taken active shape, but it could be expressed in a somewhat sullen refusal to agree to the Pope's proposals. The emperor recognized the symptoms and wrote to Rome advising the pope to be cautious how he dealt with Luther. His advice was thrown away. When after wearying delays, the monk had his first interview with the cardinal legate, he was told that no discussion could be permitted, private or public, until Luther had recanted his heresies, had promised not to repeat them, 
and had given assurance that he would not trouble the peace of the church in the future. Being pressed to name the heresies, the adroit theologian named two opinions which had wide-reaching consequences, the 58th conclusion of the theses and the statement in the Resoluciones that the sacraments were not efficacious apart from their faith in the recipient. There was some discussion notwithstanding the cardinal's declaration. But in the end, Luther was ordered to recant or depart. He departed. And after an appeal from the Pope ill-informed to the Pope to be well-informed, and also an appeal to a general council, he returned to Wittenberg. There he wrote out an account of his interview with the legate, the Acta Augustana, which was published and read all over Germany. The interview between the Cardinal Legate and Luther at Augsburg almost dates the union between the new religious movement, the growing national restlessness under Roman domination, and the humanist intellectual revolt. A well-known and pious monk, an esteemed teacher in a university which he was making famous throughout Germany, an earnest moralist who had proposed to discuss the efficacy of a system of indulgences which manifestly had some detrimental sides, had been told, in the most peremptory way, that he must recant, and that without explanation or discussion. German patriots saw in the proceeding another instance of the contemptuous way in which Rome always treated Germany. Humanists believed it to be tyrannical stifling of the truth, even worse than the dealings with Reuschlin. And both humanist and patriot believed it to be another instance of the Roman greed for German gold. As for Luther himself, he daily expected a bull from Rome excommunicating him as a heretic. But the political condition of affairs in Germany was too delicate— the country was on the eve of the choice of a king of the Romans, and possibly of an imperial election, and the support of the elector of Saxony too important, for the Pope to proceed rashly in the condemnation of Luther, which had been pronounced by his legate at Augsburg. It was resolved to send a special delegate to Germany to report upon the condition of affairs there. Care was taken to select a man— who would be acceptable to the elector. Charles von Miltitz belonged to a noble Saxon family. He was one of the Pope's chamberlains, and for some years had been the elector's agent at Rome. His holiness did more to gain over Luther's protector. Frederick had long wished for that mark of the Pope's friendship, the golden rose, and had privately asked for it through Miltitz himself. The golden rose was now sent to him with a gracious letter. Miltitz was also furnished with formal papal letters to the elector, to his counsellors, to the magistrates of Wittenberg, and to several others, letters in which Luther figured as a child of Satan. The phrase was probably forgotten when Leo wrote to Luther some time later and addressed him as his dear son. Miltitz had no sooner reached Germany than he saw that the state of affairs there was utterly unknown to the Roman Curia. It was not a man that had to be dealt with, but the slowly increasing movement of a nation. 
He felt this during the progress of his journey. When he reached Augsburg and Nuremberg, and found himself among his old friends and kinsmen, three out of five were strongly in favor of Luther. So impressed was he with the state of feeling in the country, that before he entered Saxony he put the golden rose in a sack with the indulgences, to use the words of his friend, the jurist Scholl, laid aside all indications of the papal commissioner, and travelled like a private nobleman. Tetzel was summoned to meet him, but the unhappy man declared that his life was not safe if he left his convent. Miltitz felt that it would be better to have private interviews before producing his official credentials. He had one with Luther, where he set himself to discover how much Luther would really yield, and found that the reformer was not the obstinate man he had been led to suppose. Luther was prepared to yield much. He would write a submissive letter to the Pope, he would publish an advice to the people to honor the Roman Church, and he would say that indulgences were useful in remitting canonical satisfactions. All of which Luther did. But the Roman Curia did not support Miltitz, and the commissioner had to reckon with John Eck of Ingolstadt, who wished to silence his old friend by scholastic dialectic and procure his condemnation as a heretic. Nor was Luther quite convinced of Miltitz's honesty. When the commissioner dismissed him with a kiss, he could not help asking himself, he tells us, whether it was a Judas kiss. He had been re-examining his convictions about the faith which justifies, and trying to see their consequences, and he had been studying the papal decretals and discovering to his amazement and indignation the frauds that many of them contained, and the slender foundation which they really gave for the pretensions of the papacy. He had been driven to these studies. The papal theologians had confronted him with the absolute authority of the Pope. Luther was forced to investigate the evidence for this authority. His conclusion was that the papal supremacy had been forced on Germany on the strength of a collection of decretals, and that many of these decretals would not bear investigation. It is hard to say, judging from his correspondence, whether this discovery brought joy or sorrow to Luther. He had accepted the Pope's supremacy. It was one of the strongest of his inherited beliefs— and now, under the combined influence of historical study, of the opinions of the early fathers, and of Scripture, it was slowly dissolving. He hardly knew where he stood. He was half terrified, half exultant at the results of his studies, and the ebb and flow of his own feelings were answered by the anxieties of his immediate circle of friends. A public disputation might clear the air— and he almost feverishly welcomed X challenge to dispute publicly with him, at Leipzig, on the primacy and supremacy of the Pope. Contemporary witnesses describe the common country carts which conveyed the Wittenberg theologians to the capital of Ducal Saxony. The two hundred students with their halberts and helmets who escorted their honored professors into what was an enemy's country— 
the crowded inns and lodging-houses where the master of the house kept a man with a halbert standing beside every table to prevent disputes becoming bloody quarrels the densely packed hall in duke george's palace the citizens guard the platform with its two chairs for the disputants and seats for academic and secular dignitaries and the two theologians both sons of peasants met to protect the old or to cleave away for the new Eck's intention was to force luther to make such a declaration as would justify him in denouncing his opponent as a partisan of the bohemian heresy the audience swayed with a wave of excitement and duke george placed his arms akimbo wagged his long beard and said aloud god help us the plague when luther was forced in spite of protestations to acknowledge that not all the opinions of wycliffe and hus were wrong so far as the fight in dialectic had gone eck was victorious he had compelled luther as he thought to declare himself and there remained only the bull of excommunication and to rid germany of a pestilent heretic he was triumphant luther was correspondingly downcast and returned to wittenberg full of melancholy forebodings but some victories are worse than defeats eck had done what the more politic miltitz had wished to avoid he had made luther a central figure round which all the smouldering discontent of germany with rome could rally and had made it possible for the political movement to become impregnated with the passion of religious conviction the leipzig disputation was perhaps the most important episode in the whole course of luther's career it made him see clearly for the first time what lay in his opposition to indulgences and it made others see it also it was after leipzig that the younger german humanists rallied round luther to a man the burghers saw that religion and liberty were not opposing but allied forces that there was room for a common effort to create a germany for the germans the feeling awakened gave new life to luther sermons pamphlets controversial writings from his tireless pen flooded the land and were read eagerly by all classes of the population three of these writings stand forth preeminently the liberty of a christian man to the christian nobility of the german nation concerning the reformation of the christian commonwealth and on the babylonish captivity of the church they were all written during the year fifteen twenty after three years spent in controversy and at a time when luther felt that he had completely broken with rome they are known in germany as the three great reformation treatises the tract on christian liberty was probably the last published october fifteen twenty but it contains the principles which underlie the two others it is a brief statement free from all theological subtleties of the priesthood of all believers which is a consequence of the fact of justification by faith alone the first part shows that everything which a christian has can be traced back to his faith if he has faith he has all if he has not faith he has nothing 
the second part shows that everything which a Christian man does must come from his faith. It is necessary to use all the ceremonies of divine service which have been found helpful for spiritual education. Perhaps to fast and practice mortifications, but these are not good things in the sense that they make a man good. They are all signs of faith and are to be practiced with joy because they are done to the God to whom faith unites man. Luther applied those principles to the reformation of the Christian Church in his book on its Babylonish captivity. The elaborate sacramental system of the Roman Church is subjected to a searching criticism, in which Luther shows that the Roman Curia has held the Church of God in bondage to human traditions, which run counter to plain messages and promises in the Word of God. He declares himself in favor of the marriage of the clergy, and asserts that divorce is in some cases lawful. The appeal to the Christian nobility of the German nation made the greatest immediate impression. Contemporaries called it a trumpet blast. It was a call to all Germany to unite against Rome. It was written in haste, but must have been long meditated upon. Luther wrote the introduction on the 23rd of June, 1520. The printers worked as he wrote. It was finished and published about the middle of August, and by the 18th of the month, 4,000 copies had gone into all parts of Germany, and the printers could not supply the demand. This appeal was the manifesto of a revolution set forth by a true leader of men, able to concentrate the attack and direct it to the enemy's one vital spot. It grasped the whole situation. It summed up with vigor and directness all the grievances which had hitherto been stated separately and weakly. It embodied every proposal of reform, however incomplete, and set it in its proper place in one combined scheme. All the parts were welded together by a simple and direct religious faith and made living by the moral earnestness which pervaded the whole. Reform had been impossible, the appeal says, because the walls behind which Rome lay entrenched had been left standing, walls of straw and paper, but in appearance, formidable fortifications. If the temporal powers demanded reforms, they were told that the spiritual power was superior and controlling. If the spiritual power itself was attacked from the side of Scripture, it was affirmed that no one could say what Scripture really meant but the Pope. If a council was called for to make the reform, men were informed that it was impossible to summon a council without the leave of the Pope. Now this pretended spiritual power which made reform impossible was a delusion. The only real spiritual power existing belonged to the whole body of believers in virtue of the spiritual priesthood bestowed upon them by Christ himself. The clergy were distinguished from the laity, not by an indelible character imposed upon them in a divine mystery called ordination, but because they were set in the commonwealth to do a particular work. If they neglected the work they were there to do, the clergy were accountable to the same temporal powers which ruled the land. The statement that the Pope alone can interpret Scripture is a foolish one. 
the Holy Scripture is open to all and can be interpreted by all true believers who have the mind of Christ and come to the Word of God humbly and really seeking enlightenment. When a council is needed, every individual Christian has a right to do his best to get it summoned, and the temporal powers are there to represent and enforce his wishes. The straw walls having been cleared away, the appeal proceeds with an indictment against Rome. There is in Rome one who calls himself the Vicar of Christ, and whose life has small resemblance to that of our Lord and St. Peter. For this man wears a triple crown. A single one does not content him, and keeps up such a state that he requires a larger personal revenue than the emperor. He has surrounding him a number of men called cardinals, whose only apparent use is to draw to themselves the revenues of the richest convents and benefices, and to spend this money in keeping up the state of a wealthy monarch in Rome. In this way, and through other holders of German benefices who live as hangers-on at the papal court, Rome takes from Germany a sum of 300,000 gulden annually, more than is paid to the emperor. Rome robs Germany in many other ways, most of them fraudulent, annets, absolution money, etc. The chicanery used to get possession of German benefices, the exactions on the bestowal of the pallium, the trafficking in exemptions and permissions to evade laws ecclesiastical and moral are all trenchantly described. The plan of reform sketched includes the complete abolition of the supremacy of the Pope over the state, the creation of a national German church with an ecclesiastical national council to be the final court of appeal for Germany and to represent the German church as the Diet did the German state. Some internal religious reforms, such as the limitation of the number of pilgrimages, which are destroying morality and creating in men a distaste for honest work, reductions in the mendicant orders, which are mere incentives to a life of beggary, the inspection of all convents and nunneries, and permission given to those who are dissatisfied with their monastic lives to return to the world the limitation of ecclesiastical festivals, which are too often nothing but scenes of gluttony, drunkenness, and debauchery, a married priesthood, and an end put to the universal and degrading concubinage of the German parish priests. The appeal closes with some solemn words addressed to the luxury and licensed immorality of the cities. None of Luther's writings produced such an instantaneous, widespread, and powerful effect as did this appeal. It went circulating all over Germany, uniting all classes of society in a way hitherto unknown. It was an effectual antidote, so far as the majority of the German people were concerned, to the bull of excommunication which had been prepared in Rome by Catietan, Prierias, and Eck and had been published there in June 1520. Eck was entrusted with the publication of the bull in Germany, where it did not command much respect. It had been drafted by men who had been Luther's opponents, and suggested the gratification of private animosity, rather than calm judicial examination and rejection of heretical opinion. 
The feeling grew stronger when it was discovered that Eck, having received the power to do so, had inserted the names of Adelmann, Parkheimer, Spengler, and Karlstadt, along with that of Luther, all five personal enemies. The German bishops seemed to be unwilling to allow the publication of the bull within their districts. Later the publication became dangerous, so threatening was the attitude of the crowds. Luther, on his part, burnt the bull publicly, and electrified Germany by the deed. Rome had now done its utmost to get rid of Luther by way of ecclesiastical repression. If he was to be overthrown, if the new religious movement and the national uprising which enclosed it were to be stifled, this could only be done by the aid of the highest secular power. The Roman Curia turned to the emperor. Maximilian had died suddenly on the 12th of January, 1519. After some months of intriguing, the papal diplomacy being very tortuous, his grandson, Charles V, the young king of Spain, was unanimously chosen to be his successor, June 28th. Troubles in Spain prevented him from leaving that country at once to take possession of his new dignities. He was crowned at Aachen on the 23rd of October, 1520, and opened his first German diet on January 22nd, 1521. The proceedings of this diet were of great importance apart from its relation to Luther, but to the common people of Germany, to the papal nuncius, Aleander and Caraccioli, and to the foreign envoys, the issues raised by Luther's revolt against Rome were the matters of absorbing interest. Girolamo Aleander had been specially selected by Pope Leo X to secure Luther's condemnation by the emperor. He was a cultivated churchman who knew Germany well and had been in intimate relations with many of the German humanists. His despatches and those of the envoys of England, Spain, and Venice witnessed to the extraordinary excitement among the people of all classes. Aleander had been in Germany ten years earlier and had found no people so devoted to the papacy as the Germans. Now all things were changed. The legion of poor nobles, the German lawyers and canonists, the professors and students, the men of learning and the poets, were all on Luther's side. Most of the monks, a large portion of the clergy, many of the bishops, supported Luther. His friends had the audacity to establish a printing press in Worms, whence issued quantities of the forbidden writings which were hawked about in the marketplace, on the streets, and even within the emperor's palace. These books were eagerly bought and read with avidity. Large prices were sometimes given for them. Aleander could not induce the emperor to consent to Luther's immediate condemnation. Charles must have felt the difficulties of the situation. His position as head of the Holy Roman Empire— the traditional policy of the Habsburg family, his own deeply rooted personal convictions, which found outcome in the brief statement read to the princes on the day after Luther's appearance, all go to prove that he had not the slightest sympathy with the reformer, and that he had resolved that he should be condemned. 
but the diet's consent was necessary before the imperial ban could be issued and besides charles had his own bargain to make with the pope and this matter of luther might help him to make a good one the diet resolved that luther should be heard a safe conduct was sent along with the summons to attend luther travelled to varms and what seemed like a triumphal procession to the angry partisans of the pope and on april sixteenth he appeared before charles and the diet he entered smiling says aleander he looked slowly round the assembly and his face became grave on a table near where he was placed there was a pile of books twenty-five of luther's writings had been hastily collected by command of the emperor and placed there the procedure was entrusted to john eck the official of Trier, to be distinguished from john eck of ingolstadt a man in whom aleander had much confidence and who was lodged he says significantly in the chamber next his luther was asked whether the books before him were of his authorship the names were read over to him and whether he would retract what he had written in them he answered acknowledging the books but asked for time to consider how to reply to the second question he was granted delay till the following day and retired to his lodging the evening and the night were a time of terrible depression conflict despair and prayer before the dawn came the victory had been won and he felt in a great calm he was sent for in the evening april eighteenth the streets were so thronged that his conductors had to take him by obscure passages to the diet there was the same table with the same pile of books this time luther was ready with his answer and his voice had recovered its clear musical note when asked whether having acknowledged the books to be his he was prepared to defend them or to withdraw them he replied at some length in substance it was that his books were not all of the same kind in some he had written on faith and morals in a way approved by all and that it was needless to retract what friends and foes alike approved of others were written against the papacy a system which by teaching and example was ruining christendom and that he could not retract these writings as for the rest he was prepared to admit that he might have been more violent in his charges than became a christian but still he was not prepared to retract them either but he was ready to listen to any one who could show that he had erred the speech was repeated in latin for the benefit of the emperor then charles told him through eck that he was not there to question matters which had been long ago decided and settled by general councils and that he must answer plainly whether he meant to retract what he had said contradicting the decisions of the council of constance luther answered that he must be convinced by holy scripture for he knew that both pope and councils had erred his conscience was fast bound to holy scripture and it was neither safe nor honest to act against conscience this was said in german and in latin the emperor asked him through eck 
whether he actually believed that a general council could err. Luther replied that he did, and could prove it. Eck was about to begin a discussion, but Charles interposed. His interest was evidently confined to the one point of a general council. Luther was dismissed, the crowd followed him, and a number of the followers of the elector of Saxony accompanied him. Aleander tells us that as he left the audience hall, he raised his hand in the fashion of the German soldier who had struck a good stroke. He had struck his stroke and left the hall. Next day Charles met the princes and read them a paper in which he had written his own opinion of what ought to be done. The Germans pleaded for delay and negotiations with Luther. This was agreed to, and meetings were held in hopes of arriving at a conference. A commission of eight, representing the electors, the nobles, and the cities, was appointed to meet with Luther. They were all sincerely anxious to arrive at a working compromise, but the negotiations were in vain. The emperor's assertion of the infallibility of a general council, and Luther's phrase, a conscience fast bound to the Holy Scripture, could not be welded together by any diplomacy however sincere. The word of God was to Luther a living voice speaking to his own soul. It was not to be stifled by the decisions of any council. Luther was ready to lay down his life, rather than accept any compromise which endangered the Christian liberty which came to men by justifying faith. The negotiations having failed, the ban of the empire was pronounced against Luther. It was dated on the day on which Charles concluded his secret treaty with Pope Leo X, as if to make clear to the Pope the price which he paid for the condemnation of the Reformer. Luther was ordered to quit Worms on April 26th, and his safe conduct protected him for twenty days, and no longer. At their expiration he was liable to be seized and destroyed as a pestilent heretic. On his journey homewards, he was captured by a band of soldiers and taken to the castle of Wartburg by order of the Elector of Saxony. This was his Patmos, where he was to be kept in safety until the troubles were over. His disappearance did not mean that he was no longer a great leader of men, but it marks the time when the Lutheran revolt merges in national opposition to Rome. End of section 16. Read by The Story Girl.